pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we turn to your word, will you please open our hearts and minds to receive. Help us to be open to the work of your spirit in our lives, uh, to be willing and ready to hear what you have to say, not for somebody else, but for us, that we may be changed to be more like Christ, that we may live kingdom-first lives. For your honor and glory, in Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. Have you ever tried to have a conversation with a three-year-old and you felt like you must be speaking another language based upon their answers? That everything you ask, they just randomly say something back and you think, are you listening to me at all? That is what a Jason Garrett press conference is like. If you've ever listened to or seen a Jason Garrett press conference, that's what it's like. Um, if you're not sure who that is, you heathen, Jason Garrett <laughs> is the head coach of the Dallas Cowboys. And at some point, if you want to hear the amazing ability to just deflect and restate, not say anything, but say it in a whole lot of words, listen to Jason Garrett Preff's conference. It goes something like this. A reporter will be called on, and they will say, so, Dez is going through his rehab, he's looking kind of good, do you think that Dez is going to play this weekend? And Jason will go, oh yeah, Dez. Yeah, Dez is our player, he plays for us. Yeah, he's on the Cowboys and he's really good. We're glad we have Dez. <laughs> and then somebody else will get called on and say, okay, Jason, is he going to be on the field this week to play? The field. We have an amazing field. I mean, Jerry just shelled out bucks for this field. You should come check it out. Come to our field sometime. It's awesome. Okay, Jason, one more time. Um, you're getting a phone call, Jason. One more time, Jason. So, uh, is Dez going to play on game day? This Sunday, on game day, is he going to play? Day. Yeah, day by day by day. That's what we do. Today and then tomorrow today and the next day today, and it's day by day we look at our players. I want to try that sometime with my wife. <laughs> I don't think it's going to go well. I think it would look something like this. My wife, I come home and she says, did you pick up the kids from school? Kids. Yeah, we have three of them. We have three kids. They're beautiful kids. Like two boys and a girl. Yeah, right. Okay. Kids love my kids. Um, did you pick them up from school? School? Yes, they go to school. All of them do. I think they're doing well, right? Are they doing well at school, honey? Yes, I think they did great at school. Um, it's your day. Like your day to pick them up. Day by day by day, I think about my kids, and I work hard for them, and I'm, I'm sure I'm going to be on the couch if I do that, but here's the thing. This is what I see in Jason Garrett. 
he answers the question that he wants to answer. Doesn't matter what's actually asked. He answers the question that he wants to answer. And he answers it in the way that he wants to answer it. Now, here's a question that I think lots of believers have. You can tell me if you've ever asked this question. The question is, how do I find margin in my life for God? There's changes I want to make. There's things I want to do for the Lord. But how do I fit all that into my life? Just raise your hand if your life is busy. Whoever's not raising your hand, you're lying. Hey, like, our lives are busy. They're filled, and we're asking this question, Lord, I, it's not that I don't want to do more. It's not that I don't want to serve you. I'm just trying to figure out where it fits in my life. And I think we are answering the wrong question. I think the Lord's question to us today if you want to know what a kingdom first life is, is not how do I find margin in my life to fit the Lord in. It's after I've put the Lord in my life, how do I find margin for everything else? Today, I'm just going to be very upfront. It's going to sound radical. It's going to sound very challenging. And I don't want anybody to think that if you don't walk out the doors this morning doing absolutely everything I say this morning, that somehow you're a bad Christian. Somehow you should feel guilty or terrible about yourself. Nor do I want you to look at me and go, oh, he's just some zealot and we can't be doing those things. That's not realistic. I'm asking you this morning to be open to having your lives radically challenged in the primary question. After I give my time, my resources, who I am to God, what is the margin I have remaining for everything else? Open up your Bible, if you would, to 1 Chronicles chapter 16. We're going to look at a number of passages, and then pull them together. Right, this is going to be more like painting a picture. Instead of a single passage that we go verse by verse through, this is, I want to, I want to highlight some passages as if they're brush strokes of a painting, and then pull them together. First Chronicles 16. I'm going to read a couple of different verses out of this chapter, and then we're going to move on to a couple other chapters. Here's the first um, aspect of your everyday life that I want to challenge you on. Time. Your calendar. First Chronicles 16. David has got this song of thanks. We're going to look at this a little bit more next week as we talk about Thanksgiving. But I just want you to look at verse 11. Seek Yahweh and his strength. Seek his presence continually. There is nothing we are doing in our lives where we are not called to be seeking him about it. There is no sacred and secular division where over here there is my Sunday or my prayer time, and over here 
There is my work time and my friends and the movies and sports and whatever else it is. It's a seeking of the Lord continually. Now, in practical outworking, look at verse 37. So David left Asaph and his brothers there before the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh to minister regularly before the Ark as each day required. And also Obed-Edom and his 68 brothers, while Obed-Edom and the son of Jeduthun and Hosa were to be gatekeepers. And he left Zadok the priest and his brothers, the priests before the tabernacle of Yahweh, in the high place that was at Gibeon, to offer burnt offerings to Yahweh on the the altar of burnt offering regularly, morning and evening, to do all that is written in the law of Yahweh that he commanded Israel. Now, jump over to 2 Chronicles chapter 2. Or just let me read, either way. I'm going to read them all. I'll tell you the passages. If you want to jump, you can. 2 Chronicles chapter 2, verse 4. That was David. Now we have Solomon, his son. Behold, I am about to build a house for the name of Yahweh my God and dedicated to him for the burning of incense of sweet spices before him and for the regular arrangement of showbread for burnt offerings morning and evening on the Sabbaths and the new moons and the appointed feasts of Yahweh our God as ordained forever for Israel. Now, chapter 8 in Second Chronicles and verse 12. Then Solomon offered up burnt offerings to Yahweh on the altar of Yahweh, that he had built before the vestibule as the duty of each day required, offering according to the commandment of Moses for the Sabbaths, the new moons, and the three annual feasts, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booths. What is the picture that I want you to see? They organized their lives first around what God called them to. Every day, morning and evening, offering and prayer, Sabbaths for weekly, for monthly, new moons, for yearly, the annual feasts. And this is what I mean. I want you to imagine pulling out a calendar for 2017, and there is nothing on it. Here's the first thing that they put on the calendar. Morning and evening prayer every single day. It's penciled in. Then we put in the Sabbath. Every single week we put in the Sabbath. Then we put in these annual feasts and the new moons for the months. And once that is all filled out on the calendar, now, all right, let's see. I got to go to work, so I'm going to go in here. And let's see, we've got a soccer game. It's going right here. And we've got this, and it's going right here. The daily ordering of their lives was first centered on God, and then everything else was put in. Could you imagine how radical that would be in Frisco? I mean, just think of our lives and what our calendars look like. What are the first things that go on there? What are the last things that go on there? But that's how they ordered their everyday lives. Now, is there a cost to that? Absolutely. I want to give you a very, very famous one. In fact, I'm going to 
talk about him a little bit this morning. Um, you'll all, you're all going to know this name, I think. At least most of you will. Eric Little. Chariots of Fire. Uh, he's most famous for a quote, but then what he did. Right, and here's what happened. 1924 Olympics in Paris. He was to run the 100. He was also to run the 4x100 and the 4x400 relays. But they were going to be on a Sunday. And so he would not run them. Now, what he did right there, it's not just like, oh, well, that's really neat. Like, it's on a Sunday, and so he gave that up. I, I just I want to walk through what he gave up and how big of a deal it was. When he said he wasn't going to run, the British Olympic Council went to him, as did the Prince of Wales, to try to convince him to run. Because he was favored to win the gold, and they needed him also in the relays. Then, when that didn't work, they wrote to the International Olympic Council, asking them if they would change the rules so that runners who didn't want to run on a Sunday would not have to run. They wouldn't do it because of all the other countries. But I mean, this was a huge deal. There was a paper in Los Angeles where the front page of the paper was runner not to run in Olympics because of Sundays. Now for him, it meant giving up what was surely a gold. But it also meant he went to a different race. Okay, so in the movie, if you watch the movie, he's getting ready to get on the boat, and he's going to cross the English Channel to go over, and he finds out. And it's this very dramatic, like, oh, no, it's on a Sunday. And he starts just, oh, and, it is, and he's agonizing over whether or not he's going to run this race, and that is total fiction. Makes for a great movie. He knew months ahead of time, and there's no evidence at all that he agonized over this. Months ahead of time, he went, it's on a Sunday, I'm not racing it. Do you know what he did then? He switched to the 400. He wasn't even training for it. Could you imagine a few months to train for a race in the Olympics? But that was part of the sacrifice of saying, I will not run on a Sunday. It cost something. Now, this next statement is not meant to make you feel guilty at all. It is meant to just make you think. Okay, so if you feel guilty, that's your fault, not mine. <laughs> I'm being very upfront here, right? He would not run in the Olympics on a Sunday. How many times is your Sunday taken up by a third grade soccer game? Again, I'm not asking you to go change your whole schedule necessarily. I'm not telling you, oh, I feel terrible. No, I want you to think about that. I want you to think how seriously he took this and how seriously you see David, Solomon, and everybody around them saying, we're going to organize our lives around this, and then we're going to fit the other things in. Right? That's what they did with their time. For a very modern example, they just opened a Chick-fil-A by our house. And we are really excited because it's like in walking distance. It's 423 in Stonebrook. 
I mean, they needed another one, because if you ever go to the one on El Dorado, most of Frisco is there. I don't know how any other restaurant's even in business, because there's so many cars at that Frisco uh, location. But they opened this new one. And we walk over there, and one of the first things you see, closed Sundays. That costs them somewhere around a billion dollars a year to be closed on a Sunday. That is a commitment. And the reason they have the commitment is, and it's twofold. If you go read their corporate statements, it is both an honoring of God and his day, but it is also an honoring of people that they can worship on that day. And it costs something to do that. I'm not telling you anything I'm saying right now would be easy. But if you want to know what a kingdom first life looks like, it's where your time is first given to God. Not as the leftovers, but as the first thing. Number two, resources. And when I say resources, and you're going to see this in the passage, here's what I mean. Yes, your money. I will get that out of the way. Yes, money is part of resources. It is your money. It is your time. It's your vocation. It's your abilities. What have you been gifted with? That all of these things, you would first think, how do I serve God with this? If you would, turn to 1 Chronicles 22. In verse 1. 1 Chronicles 22, verse 1. And then David said, Here shall be the house of Yahweh God, and here the altar of burnt offering for Israel. David commanded to gather together the resident aliens who were in the land of Israel, and he set stone cutters to prepare dressed stones for the building of the house of God. David also provided great quantities of iron for nails for the doors of the gates and for clamps as well as bronze in quantities beyond weighing, and cedar timbers without number. For the Sidians and the Tyrians were brought, brought great quantities of cedar to David. For David said, Solomon, my son, is young and inexperienced, and the houses to be built for Yahweh must be exceedingly magnificent, of fame and glory through all, throughout all lands. I will therefore make preparation for it. So David provided materials in great quantity before his death. Flip over to chapter 23. Look at verse 1. When David was old and full of days, he made Solomon his son king over Israel. David assembled all the leaders of Israel and the priests and Levites. The Levites 30 years old and upward were numbered. The total was 38,000 men. 24,000 of these, David said, shall have charge of work in the house of Yahweh, 6,000 to be officers and judges, 4,000 gatekeepers, 4,000 shall offer praises to Yahweh with instruments that I have made, that I have made for praise. And David organized them in divisions corresponding to the sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Mirari. Let me stop there. Notice what David is doing. David is taking his vocation. And he's sacrificing and using it to build something for Yahweh. Because everything that David uses for the house of Yahweh, he cannot use for himself. But it is his as king. 
but he's using it. Now, he's not just using what he has as king. He's also using his own abilities. David was an organizer. It was part of his giftedness. I imagine David was very type A. He was an administrator. And here's David going, all right, we're going to organize you, we're going to organize you, we're going to organize you, you're going to serve this way, you're going to serve this way. But he's also doing something we'll see later that his son does. He's using his royal ties to reach out to other nations and get them to help with this. His influence, his power, his abilities, his money, everything that he has as this king, he's using it for Yahweh. Now, jump to uh, chapter 29. Look at verse 1. Hey, once again, um, I am definitely not trying to make you feel guilty. But when you read this, if you do, it is your fault. All right. 29 verse 1. And David the king said to all the assembly... Solomon, my son, whom alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced, and the work is great, for the palace will not be made for a man, but for Yahweh God. Notice he just keeps that in perspective. Why is it that David is doing all of this? Because this is for Yahweh. He's willing to give whatever he has because it's for Yahweh. Verse 2, so I have provided for the house of my God so far as I was able, the gold for the things of gold, the silver for the things of silver, and the bronze for the things of bronze, the iron for the things of iron, and the wood for the things of wood, besides great quantities of onyx and stones for setting, colored stones, all sorts of precious stones and marble. Verse 3, moreover, in addition to all that I have provided for the holy place, I have a treasure of my own. This is not the royal treasure. This is not what he has because he's king. I have a treasure of my own, of gold and silver, and because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give it to the house of my God. 3,000 talents of gold, and he goes through this whole thing of all the stuff he's given, and then he asks this question. I'm not asking, God is asking. I'm sorry, the Bible's asking. Who then will offer willingly? And that's really important. And we've said that every single time we come around to doing pledge cards. We need a willing, joyful offering. I am never going to twist your arm. I will never try to manipulate you to give more money to this church. We want people giving willingly because they've consecrated themselves to the Lord, whatever you can give. And even here, that's how David says it. Who will willingly consecrate himself today to Yahweh. Then the leaders of fathers' houses Leaders of houses, hear what they do. They made their free will offerings, as did also the leaders of the tribes, the commanders of thousands and of hundreds, and the officers of the king's work. Jump down to verse 9. He, he kind of lays out what they gave. Then the people rejoiced. I can't tell you the number of people I know who sacrificially give to the Lord, whether it's the church or it's missions, or it's nonprofits, or it's a combination, whatever it is, and that they have joy because of their giving, especially when it's sacrificial. And here it is. Um, Then the people rejoiced 
because they had given willingly with a whole heart. They had offered freely to Yahweh. David the king also rejoiced greatly. David is giving his vocation, he's giving his abilities, he's giving his own treasure, he's giving everything he has to Yahweh. Use this. I want to build something for you. I want my life to be wrapped up in you. Two more. Turn to 2 Chronicles 1. This is a famous passage. You'll all know it. Uh, Probably not from Chronicles. Uh, You'll know it from Kings, but the passage is very similar. uh, 2 Chronicles 1, verse 7. In that night, God appeared to Solomon and said to him, Ask what I shall give you. Would you just imagine that? I mean, could you imagine one day? You're like, you're hanging out in your house. You're watching football. I mean, it starts in an hour and 12 minutes. And, and, and you're watching the Cowboys. And God shows up in your living room. And he says, ask what you want. What do you ask for? I mean, what, what comes to mind? What do you first think? Oh, man. I mean, he's basically said, here's a, here's a blank check, Solomon. Just tell me how much you want. I've signed it. Here it is. What do you want? And Solomon's answer. Solomon said to God, you have shown great and steadfast love to David, my father, and you have made me king in his place. The first thought on David's mind is what God has done for him. Keeps going. O Yahweh God, let your word to David, my father, be now fulfilled, for you have made me king over the people as numerous as the dust of the earth. Give me now wisdom and knowledge to go out and come in before this people, for who can govern this people of yours, which is so great? You're offering me a new asset. I already have a bunch of power. I've got riches. I've got all kinds of stuff. You're offering me another one. I got a new asset, and his first thought is, because of this people of yours that I'm called to govern God, give me wisdom. That way I can govern them well. Even when he's offered a new asset, it's still centered on God. It's still, I want something where I can serve you more. Not, I want more so I can have more money and get a bigger house. I want more that I can serve you. Give me something that will let me serve you even in a greater way. All of his resources, he's allocating to God first. So because of what happened in the Olympics, because of his great fame, uh, because of the movie that would come along, that's why most people know Eric Little. That, that was his fame. However, if you're following his life, the fame will drop off quite suddenly in 1925. Now, you're, you're talking just barely after his Olympic victory. Right, when he is, I mean, you saw commercials this year, right, after the Olympics. All these people winning multiple golds, what were they doing? Commercial after commercial after commercial because everybody wants them. I mean, you can write your own ticket right there. Whatever asset you need, I'm giving it to you because you're an Olympic gold medalist, okay? And especially the guy who is already exceedingly famous because he went, I won't run on a Sunday, so I'm gonna miss the meet that I'm best at, and I'm gonna go train for something else, and I set a record for that 400. 
that went 10 years, beat the guy who was supposed to beat, he could have done anything he wanted to. You know what he did? He went to China to be a missionary. Now, this isn't a story where I say to you, okay, everybody, if you really want to serve God, quit your job and go to China and be a missionary. That's not the point. There's something far more profound about why he does this. He was born in China. His parents were there. His dad was a missionary. He went back to the same place, and here's why he went back. He felt like he could serve God greater with what he had there than he could on the field running races. He had a science degree. He was amazing athlete. He went back to a school where he could teach the, ed- the, the rich um, Chinese kids. And he could teach them science and he could teach them sports. And by the way, he still would not do sports on Sunday, even in the school. But he could teach them God. And then that would bring the gospel into China. It wasn't this like, oh, I can't serve God in any other way other than being a missionary. It was, what resources do I have? One, I know this culture. I was raised in it. Two, I have a brain where I've learned science, and I want to go teach it to them, and I want to teach them sports, and that's an inroad, these sports. And I can use this to impact China. And at this point, there were a number of missionary organizations looking for ways to influence China. But his story goes on, because he goes there in 25. However, in 41, when China and Japan get into war, in 1943, as Japan comes into China, he will get taken to an internment, a prison camp, along with a bunch of others, And in this camp, there'll be 1,500 people. And you can see today documentaries on people who came out of the camp describing it. But they go into this camp, and there's no running water. The latrines are overfilling. There's no heat. There's nothing. And they just lock them inside this walled area with 1,500 people. They're living in rooms, four to a room, with a foot between the cots. That's how they live. And... Rich Chinese are living next to prostitutes because the Japanese made no, they're not separating anybody out. Everybody's just going in. Eric Little continued in this prison camp to use everything he had for the glory of God. There are descriptions of him because they had to go get water because there's no running water and he would carry back all the time two pails because he needed one and somebody else needed one and he was strong enough to do it. They didn't have textbooks. He wrote in a journal that they had. He wrote a chemistry textbook to teach the kids chemistry. And he had to write out what experiments would do if you could do them because they didn't actually have chemicals or anything to do them with. And they would be tested on, okay, so if I mix this and mix this, what color does it turn and what happens? And they had to learn those facts. He was teaching them sports because they needed something to keep the morale up as year after year went by. But guess what? He still wouldn't teach sports on a Sunday. It was still a worship day. He devoted everything he had, even in that condition, his strength, his intellect, to serving God. 
And we serving people, what Lori was talking about. He was serving people, but he was doing it for God. In 1945, he died. February. Um, but, you know, eight, six months, whenever before they'd be rescued, he died. And there are just some amazing witnesses. There's one guy, he said, he's a much older man now, but he came out of the camp and he said, we didn't have enough construction materials to make a real coffin. So we made him a coffin, but it was like falling apart. And so we had to very carefully carry it out one freezing February morning to have it buried. And he said, I was standing there looking at the burial thinking, is this it? Like he's such a great man. Um, one other man described how throughout the camp when he died, there were grown men who never cried weeping because he'd had such an impact on their lives. His sister asked the question, you know, why? Because Eric died without ever seeing his third daughter. He had sent his family back to Canada when the war started so they would be safe, and his third daughter was born. He never got to see her, and he never got to come back. And according to his daughter, the mom was always thinking, Eric's going to be back at any point. I mean, like, he's so strong. He's, so, he's always going to come back. And so his daughter's going, why? Why did this happen? And then she met some of those who came out who were kids during the time. She got to meet them later on in life. And they would talk about the way that Eric changed everything about their imprisonment. Gave them hope and life and joy in the midst of all of this stuff. And she goes, then I realized why. My dad, while he dies in this camp, without it, he did amazing things for people. And they're still talking about it. Your time and your resources. What do you do with them? Honestly, what do you do with them? Not just the, oh yeah, I know I'm supposed to do things for God. Um, no. We're supposed to know that he's Yahweh. Like this is the God of the universe who, who loves us so much that he gave his son. And we have the privilege and the joy of centering our everyday lives around him and going with my time and with my abilities and with my money and with my, my, my job and with whatever I am, I have ways of going, how do I use this to honor you? It is a holy and joyful calling of our everyday lives for God. And that is kingdom first. Eric got a brain tumor. That's how he died. Brain tumor while he was in the prison camp. While he was in the hospital, the Red Cross um, band would come by the hospital once or twice a day, and they would play hymns. And at one point, they're out in front of the hospital, and they're playing a hymn, 
and they get a message from one of the nurses. Eric Little is in the hospital. He's dying, and he wants you to play a hymn and gave a very specific hymn for them to play. I want to read the hymn because if this is true, if the hymn is true, Eric did not die for nothing. No matter what you give up for the Lord, it will not be for nothing. Be still, my soul. The Lord is on thy side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to thy God to order and provide. In every change he faithful will remain. Be still, my soul. Thy best, thy heavenly friend through thorny ways, leads to a joyful end. Be still, my soul, thou God doth undertake to guide the future as he has the past. Thy hope, thy confidence, let nothing shake. All now mysterious shall be bright at last. Be still, my soul, the waves and winds still know his voice who ruled them while he dwelt below. Be still, my soul, the hour is hastening on when we shall be forever with the Lord. When disappointment, grief, and fear are gone, sorrow forgot, love's purest joys restored, be still, my soul, when change and tears are past, all safe and blessed we shall meet at last. And he died three days later. He lived that in a way that you see others before him. God first. Everything else as it may come. Will you pray with me? Lord, help our souls to be still in you to trust that as you have led our past, you will lead our future. To be able to look at our every day and whatever the sacrifice might be, whatever we are able to do, to put you first on our calendars, with our resources, with all that you have provided, to trust that as the day is hastening on, you are with us through all things. And there is nothing greater that we can do but to serve you with all we are. In the name of Jesus, we pray it. Amen.